The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good morning, and thank you for joining host Cheryl Esposito for an intriguing hour of leading conversations. Each week, Cheryl brings together big thinkers to the Voice America Business Channel. Now here's your host, Cheryl Esposito. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito. It is great to have you all here today. We have a very special guest. We are honored to have Jack Canfield, who is the author of The Success Principles, How to Get from Where You Are to Where You Want to Be. Jack is the originator and probably most well-known for the Chicken Soup for the Soul series, which has become an unbelievable success. And Jack can tell us a little bit about how he used his success principles to, to get there. And I have had the great pleasure of um, sitting with Jack Canfield and hearing his wisdom and um, sharing in what he knows. And it is a gift that this man brings to the planet. So, Jack, thank you for being here and welcome. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, it's very nice. So, so where are you today? Where I'm in the actually, world are you? I am actually, rarely, <laughs> I am at my home in my office in Santa Barbara, California. Oh, that's that's that is unusual. It is. Yeah. So, is it sunny in Santa Barbara today? It's actually very sunny. It's a beautiful day out there. I know that it's not that way all over the country, but it's a great day here. Oh, good. So, Santa Barbara is a lovely place. You have um, the opportunity to probably live anywhere you want in the world. What makes Santa Barbara special? You know, it's interesting. I was living in Los Angeles, and I the Chicken Soup for the Soul books took off, and you know, one year I made $6 million. I thought, well, I can live anywhere I want, as you said. And so we started looking around. We looked at Austin, Texas, Charlotte, North Carolina, um, La Jolla, California, Santa Barbara, and uh, we'd vacationed up here, and I just love it. It's um, It's got really great weather. Um, we have about a rainy season that lasts about six weeks. Mm-hmm in the winter and then the rest of the year it's really nice and the people are laid back and casual there's not a lot of like everyone trying to impress everybody like you might have in beverly hills yeah. and um the, the the quality of life is phenomenal great restaurants we're on the ocean got mountains they they can't build on the ocean side and they can't build on the mountain side so all the growth is north and south so it keeps the density down so um, and i just love it i like the california lifestyle as they say and it must feel like a nice retreat when you do go home. It does. I'm fortunate to have a three-and-a-half-acre estate, and it's uh, we have horses, and we have, uh, you know, beautiful landscaping and a pool and, you know, just a wonderful view, and it's um, very relaxing. Well, you know, with your work and, and what takes you in front of so many people uh, all around the world, my sense is that... Um, Having your own practices to keep yourself grounded would be important. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, um, I heard you say something once about not believing your own press. <laughs> and, 
And um, and I thought, you know, with somebody like Jack Canfield, um, there's an awful lot of press out there and um, a lot of really wonderful things that are said about you, and it would be pretty easy to um, fall into that whole, you know, I'm the greatest. And yet I don't experience you in that way at all. You are so humble and very approachable. What do you do? Do you have specific practices, you know, to kind of keep yourself grounded? Yeah, it's called staying married. <laughs> Having a wife, you know, she never lets me get puffed up. Um, but seriously, I do have practices. I meditate. I won't say I do it every day, but probably five days a week. Mm-hmm. And I do yoga three or four days a week. I mm-hmm. lift weights. I, uh, I used to run a lot, but I ruptured a disc in my back, weirdly, in a yoga class, of all things, oh. uh, about last May. So I'm doing an elliptical trainer. You know what that is oh, where yeah. you don't uh-huh. have the uh, impact. And um, I've got a nice television in the room so I can watch the news or, you know, watch a movie while I'm exercising. Mm-hmm. And um, and I do a lot of reading. And, you know, I, I engage in, I have a spiritual teacher that I do two calls a week with for an hour. She guides me through different kinds of meditations and journeys. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and then having a 15-year-old daughter and a 19-year-old son and, a, you know, having um, a wife, they keep you grounded you know. sure. come on you're just my dad get off it you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah go take out the trash <laughs> yeah, really really well you know um when i look at all the work that you've done and i think back to the beginning and i know it wasn't the beginning of your work but it certainly was the beginning of the phenomenon the chicken soup for the soul series um go back to when that all started you and mark victor hansen had some ideas. Actually, you did, right? Tell us how this originated. Yeah, basically, I was running around the country doing self-esteem and peak performance seminars. I had uh, offices in five cities. I'd build up a training company in St. Louis and San Diego. I think it was L.A. and um, or else on the East Coast somewhere, um, Boston. And, and I was running around doing these trainings, and I remember coming home from one one day, and I'd just done a corporate one-day training during the middle of the week. And um, Someone had said, that story about the puppy you told, is that in the book anywhere? I said, no. I said, it needs to be. My daughter needs to read it. Then about no. three days later, I was flying in from Dallas, and I was thinking on the plane. Someone asked me at this last talk I gave, that story about the Girl Scout who sold 3,125 boxes of cookies in one year. Is that in the book anywhere? My daughter needs to read it. And this was happening almost every day for about a three-month period. And mm-hmm. finally, you know, I got the message. like God was knocking on my head and saying, you've got to put all these <laughs> stories you tell in a, in right. a book. So I, I made a list uh, of all the stories I knew, you know, the Bopsy story, the, the W. Mitchell story. I didn't have names for them, just yeah. people. And I had about 70 stories, and so I made a commitment to myself that I was going to um, write two stories a week, one every three and a half days. And oh, wow. at the end of the year, I'd have a book. And so I started to do that. And I think I was about two-thirds of the way through it when Mark Victor Hansen and I had breakfast, and he said, um, uh, what are you doing these days that you're excited about? And I said, well, I'm writing this book. And he said, what's it about? I said, it's just inspirational stories, you know, like people's closing stories or keynote speeches and stuff that give people goosebumps, make them cry, make people feel they can do anything. And he said, wow, I'd like to do that with you. And I said, well, I've got 70 stories. If you could find 30 more, we'd have 100. That'd be a good number. And he's a really good marketer and, you know, very visionary, and I'm a really good detail guy. So I thought this would be a good combination. And yeah. So we got together, he found 30 more stories, and the rest is history. Oh, wow. And I think it was 101 stories, wasn't it? It was 101 stories. Mark had been a um, very good. <laughs> he had been a uh, student over in India 
uh, exchange student, and they evidently the number 101 is kind of a complete number. Uh-huh. And so we thought we'd have 101 stories, and uh, pretty much every book we've ever done, I think there's 225 in the series now, they have 101 stories. Wow. Well, you know, they, everywhere you go, people know what you mean when you say chicken soup for the soul. Um, this brand has become unbelievably successful, and it, people just light up when they even hear the phrase chicken soup for the soul because they know it makes people feel good. You know, as this started becoming more and more successful for you, um, did you find yourself having any reticence or any sense of, oh, my gosh, this is so big, or this is, um, you know, what if people think this is all I can do? I mean, did you have any of that? Because sometimes successful people go through things like that. Well, I did begin to be identified as the chicken soup guy, you know, and uh, I think the good news about that was there was a lot of years where we got, you know, wonderful keynote speech speeches all around the world because mm-hmm. of that. Uh, but it was it was not really representative of the depth of my ability to do trainings and mm-hmm. transform people and so forth and so on. So these were just the stories I was using to illustrate yeah. concepts in my talk. So um, there was a period where I thought, you know, I'm getting branded in a way that's incomplete. I don't mind it. We've made a lot of money. We've impacted a lot of lives. You know, we've made a lot of difference in the world. But mm-hmm. um, I think it was about, oh, I guess about seven years ago, uh, I realized that I wanted to... Uh, do more than that, so I wrote a book called The Success Principles, and um, you know, kind of rebranded myself in the area of teaching success as well as just telling inspirational stories. And that's been a good move in terms of uh, that book sold 700,000 copies. It's uh, in 17 languages now around the world, and I get probably three talks a week. I do somewhere uh, most of the time uh, because of that book. People are hiring me to come into their companies or associations to do those trainings and. That's really what I want. I want to inspire people. My life purpose statement is to inspire and empower people and organizations to live their highest vision in the context of love and joy in mm-hmm. harmony with the planet, meaning that people don't destroy the planet in the process mm-hmm. and um, so that things are ecologically sustainable. And so I inspire with stories, but I empower with the tools that we teach because I think inspiration without tools leads to frustration. And tools without inspiration leads to a lot of the mess you see in the world right now. Yeah, there you go. Jack, you know, a lot of the, your previous work, well, and certainly the work you're doing now, but uh, I've noticed that a lot of your previous work is connected to the concept of self-esteem. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about why that concept has been important to you in your life? Well, I think it all started when I was teaching high school in Chicago, my first real job other than working in a florist and serving breakfast at Harvard and things like that. Um, and I, I got a job as a high school teacher, and I, was, I really wanted to teach. I wanted to make a difference in the civil rights movement back then. I ended up in an all-black school in the south side of Chicago. Mm. I was going to Jesse Jackson's church on Sunday and was having a really very exciting time in the sense of you know being a social activist, trying to make yeah. a difference in the world. And one thing I noticed was that my students weren't all that motivated to learn. I mean, I'm, I'm a voracious learner. I counted it up recently. I'd read over 3,000 books and taken, you know, hundreds and hundreds of hours of seminars and so forth. And my students didn't have that same sense. And I, I was really curious, what would it take to motivate them to believe that they could achieve and so that they would extend themselves and learn what they needed to learn? And I um, 
discovered that they had low self-esteem. They didn't believe in themselves. They didn't believe they could. They didn't see anyone around them that had become successful. So I took on the task of figuring out how to get them motivated, and I found a program at the W. It was a W. Clement and Jesse V. Stone Foundation in Chicago. This guy was worth $600 million, and he'd started the foundation. And uh, when I went there to take some seminars, uh, one of the underlying things was self-esteem and what they called achievement motivation. How do you motivate people to achieve more? So as I began to work with my students uh, in this arena, I also discovered that I had some self-esteem issues. Mine weren't playing out in the sense of not trying. Mine were playing out in the sense of being a perfectionist. But I thought I had to be perfect in order to be okay. And I had some, you know, uh, bad image of what perfect was, you know, that wasn't really aligned with the essence of who I was. So I had a lot of work to do to own my feelings, to become vulnerable, to know that it was okay to um, have a lot of the things that were uniquely me and not try to live up to someone else's standards. And so in the about a 10-year period, I was working on myself, working on teaching self-esteem, and I ran around the country doing seminars for teachers, teaching them how to build self-esteem, and then eventually started a company called Self-Esteem Seminars and did seminars for the general public. Hmm. So if you, let's talk about self-esteem in, sure. in the terms of, um, you know, when you're growing up as a kid, um, people influence you, um, but there's also the concept of you come into this world with, you know, some innate traits and some mm-hmm. innate capabilities. You know, where is self-esteem kind of the nature of the nurture piece? Well, I think it's both. Obviously, there's a certain amount of your personality and a certain set of skills and talents you have. And if you believe in reincarnation, past experiences you've had that have given you certain strengths and qualities that you bring with you. And then some spiritual teachers teach that we actually come in with certain lessons we need to learn that we've contracted for. Uh, I, I tend to believe that based on my own life experiences. Mm. But whether you do or don't, the the fact is that, you know, I have five children, three normal and two stepchildren, and um, basically they're all extremely different. You know, one kid is an absolute Xbox, you know, financial MBA type kid who's going to be a business person and probably work in the financial world. Then I've got another son who's an absolute artist who's, you know, sings and dances and is very sensitive that way. And then a third child who is uh, very much into music, drums, you know, and all that. He was pounding on the desk when he was five, you know, and beating out rhythms. And so they just come in with different different agendas and different sets of qualities. But the self-esteem part, see, I say self-esteem is the belief and the knowledge, you know, the experience that you are lovable and capable. And so lovable, you've got to be loved. That's the nurture part. If nobody loves you, then you begin to draw the conclusion that you're not lovable. Now, it could be that your parents are drug addicts, workaholics, whatever, and they are not able to love anybody. And it wasn't personal to you, but if you make the decision you're not lovable, then right. that's going to be very difficult in terms of building relationships, feeling included, etc. Competent side, to feel competent, you need to have, uh, you know, achievements. You have to build skills, develop teams, uh, actually produce results in the world, get good grades, play on a football team, play in a band, whatever it might be, so that you have a sense that I can pick what I want to do and actually produce the results that I choose to produce. So... It's the combination of those two, and um, my my latest work has been in mostly in that arena of the competence side, you know, because that's what corporations want to pay for. They want right, people to right. be more productive. But 
woven into all that is self-acceptance, self-love, owning your feelings, because what you don't own in terms of your feelings will eventually come out and sabotage you, even in the area of competence. Right. That's absolutely true. Well, we have more to talk about with Jack Canfield when we come back right after this message. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. Whether the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. Well, welcome back to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito. We're speaking with Jack Canfield today, author of The Success Principles, How to Get from Where You Are to Where You Want to Be. So, Jack, we spoke a lot about self-esteem in the last segment, and it makes me wonder about, um, you know, think about the young people today, teenagers, you you spoke about your own kids, um, and I think about the challenges that I had as a teenager, which was a long time ago, <laughs> and, and I think about the challenges that kids have today as teenagers. And um, it seems like the challenges have become um, as deep and as wide as have the opportunities, you know, so the ratios have increased tremendously. Mm-hmm. How do you... Um, how do you think we, what do we need to be doing with our kids these days to really ready them to become high-functioning people on the planet? Well, I think the days of teaching content are over. The content is so readily available on the Internet. I think what we really need to be teaching our children are a number of things. We need to teach them how to uh, manage their own self-esteem, how to love themselves, how to meditate, how to manage their thoughts, how to use visualization and affirmation to energize uh, their subconscious to come up with solutions. We need to teach them how to cooperate and be on teams because uh, everything today is, uh, you know, it requires, I say that success is a team sport, so it requires teamwork. I mean, nobody gets anything done. I mean, right now you've got a whole radio network. You've got an engineer helping us out on this. I've got a staff of 12 people to work with me, and if you don't know how to work in teams, it's going to be very difficult, unless, of course, you're going to sit in a cave somewhere and write a book, but even then, you've got to go out and work with publishers and agents and 
right. you know, market your book and be on television and do all that stuff. So I think what's missing are what I call life skills. You know, we can find – just, you know, in the last three days I went in and they just typed in, how do you change a meter to a foot? How do you uh, translate, you know, this to that? Uh, you can go and translate anything on the Internet, you know, uh, basically you know, all the information is there in Wikipedia. So basically it's called how do, you, how do you take information and apply it to your life so you can produce results. I think we need to be teaching leadership skills. Mm-hmm. We need to be teaching how to maintain your body, real information on health and nutrition, not the stuff that we were, you know, I grew up in the 50s and 60s, and uh, what we were being taught then is so far different from what we now know. And um, we need to teach kids how to align with their purpose, that they have a purpose. Um, You know, we could go down the list, but it's in what we normally call the affective domain. Feelings, values, ethics, relationship skills, communication skills. Mm -hmm. Um, These are the things I think, you know, conflict management. How do you manage conflict? There's so much conflict in the world, and most people haven't a clue what you do. So I think those are the things uh, that are really required to be successful in the future, along with, Certainly kids need to know how to operate, you know, computers and work on the Internet and right. uh, do all of that. You know, a lot of um, the clients that I work with are senior execs and CEOs, mm-hmm. and what I hear from them most often is, um, you know, I have great vision, I know where I want to go, and people just don't seem to get it, quote-unquote. And as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking, you know, this is um, kind of a, pr- they are typically are a product of their time. And so we're, there's a lot of new young employees who don't simply say, okay, tell me where to go and I'll follow. They want to be more involved. And these leaders who are, whether they're emerging leaders or they're, you know, experienced seasoned CEOs, they need to lead differently. They do, and I think, you know, I teach a little formula called E plus R equals O. It says events plus responses equal outcomes. And when we don't get the outcomes we want, most people want to blame the event rather than change their response. And by that I mean, if we go back to your statement about the leaders complaining about the people aren't following, mm-hmm. right. and they're, they're saying they just don't, you know, sign up the way they used to. Right. Uh, we have to get better at enrolling people in the vision. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I was reading a book called The Leadership Challenge recently, and uh, first chapter is about how a leader has to be able to maintain the vision and then enroll people in the vision. And you're right, today's kids have grown up in a whole different world. They've had much more freedom, much more individuation and independence, and uh, they want to be enrolled. They don't want to be told what to do. They haven't been told what to do too much. Mm -hmm. And they want to know why. They want to make sure that it's ecologically sustainable. They want to make sure that it's contributing to something they care about. Uh, they're not just looking for a dollar. And um, you do have to manage them differently, which means that those people in leadership positions need to get better and learn and change and grow in their skill levels. And, um, you know, it would be really helpful to sit down with a bunch of younger people and say, okay, uh, on a scale of 1 to 10, how would you rate my leadership quality? Mm. And then what would, have, what would have to happen to make it a 10? This is one of the most powerful questions you can ever ask anybody on anything, you know, Right. You can ask your wife on a scale of 1 to 10 what's been the quality of our relationship this last week and then what would have to happen to make it a 10. Most of us are trying to figure it out inside our own little head. We're not going out and engaging the very people we want to have follow and say, well, where do you want to go? 
What's important to you? And then find a way to take their vision and their purpose and their needs and align them with your purpose and vision and needs. It takes more time. It takes more skill. But when you do it, the results are phenomenal because then you've got people that are going to be uh, always being driven by the vision rather than driven by some kind of external power structure. Well, and, and, you know, when I think about that, I think, of course, that makes so much sense because now you've got people who are part of the team, which is what you were talking about earlier, mm-hmm. and as opposed to having to um, having the burden of figuring it out yourself. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. So how much of this have you had personal experience with? In terms of? the burden of figuring it out yourself versus <laughs> things like that, Jack. <laughs> well, basically, you know, I mean, I my my natural nature is actually more um, introverted than extroverted. Uh, most people wouldn't know that because I make a living speaking and mm-hmm. doing all that stuff. But I love reading. I love being in my office by myself and, you know, getting on the Internet and following my nose from one thing leading me to the next. But I remember when I was in graduate school, we had to do a, a visualization exercise where we had to imagine a wise old person, and then uh, this person would give us some insight into our life. And I remember having a vision of walking into the library at the college I went to, and uh, there was this street bum-looking character standing on the the, um, the the library steps. And as I was walking up, he was just shaking his head, like, no. And I said, what do you mean, no? He said, what you're looking for isn't in there. I said, what do you mean? It's not in books. I said, well, where is it? He said, it's out among the people. You have to interact with people. That's where the action is. That's where you're going to gain wisdom. And um, it's true. The majority of what I know that really matters, I've learned from experience. I've learned from interacting with people. I've learned from my own staff. I mean, I have a staff. of Everyone on my staff is at least 20 years younger than me, and many of them 40 years younger. I mean, I hire one or two kids from University of California, Santa Barbara, every couple of years because we have them come over for interns. Mm. The really good ones, we offer them jobs. And, um, you know, they are different. <laughs> it's like <laughs> we go out to uh, do a one-day seminar, like we're doing one in Boston coming up, and uh, what will happen is that at the end of the night, I- I'm exhausted. You know, we go out for dinner, I'm dead. They'll go out, like we were in Dallas, they went to Gillies, and they were on those mechanical bulls all night long, <laughs> up till 3 in the morning drinking margaritas. And... Uh, you know, and I remember saying, well, I'm going home tomorrow. Are you coming on the same plane? No, we're going to stay for two days and play, you know. And mm-hmm. um, they want to engage and experience everything possible. Yeah. And so we sat at uh, this, uh, it was a wonderful, called it a steakhouse. They served buffalo and antelope and all kinds of wild stuff. And uh, they wanted to go do that as well. And we spent three hours debriefing the seminar, talking about what would be better next time in terms of, you know, enrolling people into our longer seminars, so on and so forth. And it's that level of engagement. They want to be a part of the team. They don't want to be the employees. They want to be part of the team that's as a group. See, and you think about this. I saw this with my own teenagers. I have two 19-year-olds. And they rarely go on dates. They go out in groups. Yeah. And, you know, five, six, eight people will go out for the evening. It's not like, you know, take one person out for dinner. And that's the way they want to work, too. They don't want to be, you know, paired off or singled off and then competing against each other. They want to be, you know, a team and playing together. Why do you think this has occurred in our society? I think a couple of things have happened. I think um, that with the the divorce rate that occurred, uh, mm-hmm. you know, all through the, the 80s and the 90s and 70s and so forth, 
what you've got is you've got a lot of kids who grew up in single-parent homes, right. and they had to bond with a group of friends to create community. You don't see community being created the way it used to be, where you got the grandmother and the aunts and uncles all coming over for dinner on Sunday. Right. People are sitting around watching TV when they eat dinner. So we've lost that sense of community. So the parents are often working. They're coming home late. Dinner's in the fridge, frozen dinner, whatever it might be. And um, and then they're they're traveling a lot and so forth. And I think that the kids have bonded together just out of a need for a community, and they've created it, maybe not always in the best way. They create gangs, you know, and they create uh, fraternities and sororities where they haze people to the max. And we see these girls that just, um, you know, are responsible for the other girl committing suicide. Yeah. But that gang of six kids that were doing that, that was their community. And right. it's like Lord of the Flies, it was a little out of the control. Right. But basically, I think that's the, the sociology of it. There was this a research study done that I read where, uh, and I'm going to make up these numbers are not accurate, but they're very close, that in the 1950s, right after World War II, uh, most people lived within 12 miles of their grandparents. Mm-hmm. And so these people would get together, you know, every week. Now, uh, the grandparents live in Florida, the kid lives in Connecticut, his father visits him once a weekend, you know. Mm-hmm. So we don't have that sense of extended community sociologically, Right. Uh, everybody's moved away for the better job, and, and, and that extended family is uh, often missing. Mm-hmm. Well, I even find that um, as people move into their 40s and 50s, even though they've moved around a lot and have you know a lot of different experiences and climbing the corporate ladder, et cetera, and have had great friends and communities, as they move into their 40s and 50s, there seems to be this desire to go back. You know, this desire to recreate um, mm-hmm. that family community mm-hmm. and, um, and and not just any family community, but actually go back to where the, um, the family of origin is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I see that as well. And I see people creating that, um, and I see also people creating new kinds of communities. Uh, like, you know, we created the Transformational Leadership Council, that you're familiar with, is a way to have people that are in my business uh, get together. There was no professional yes. association. We're all lonely out in the field. Yes. And so, you know, we have 120 members now who get together twice a year. You know, people like John Gray and John Asaraf and Bob Proctor and me and, you know, all these people. And so the reality is that people need this sense of community. Uh, we mm-hmm. see the retirement communities building, these Del Webb retirement communities mm-hmm. where they have these huge, almost like country club-type houses in the middle or buildings in the middle where people get together in these community centers. Right. And uh, they're, they're packed during the day because people want that level of engagement. So I think a lot of us are creating second families, if you will, families of purpose, families of intention, families of like-mindedness, mm-hmm. uh, as well as our you know, families of origin. Well, and so speaking of purpose, whether it's families of purpose or other work, um, you are a big believer in defining one's purpose, mm-hmm. one's reason for being here. Talk a little bit about that. Well, I believe that everyone is born with a purpose, just like, you know, a, a rose can't become a chrysanthemum and a chrysanthemum can't become a rose. You know, my artistic children are never going to be mechanical engineers and vice versa. Mm-hmm. So. The thing is, I believe we have a role to play. Like every cell in your body, your liver cell needs to be a liver cell. When it stops doing that, we call it cancer, and it's not a good thing. And you need to have eyeball cells and brain cells and heart cells and kidney cells and so forth. 
And I think each of us was born with a function to play that when all those functions are played out, all the needs of the community are met. So the mechanics are making sure our planes fly and our cars work, and the artists are entertaining us, and the architects are making sure we have you know nicely designed, well-functioning homes, and mm-hmm. people like you and I are inspiring and empowering people to go for their visions and dreams, and all of those roles need to be played out. The problem is when someone tries to talk you into something that isn't you. I remember right. working with a, a family of doctors. There were 11 children. The first 10 were doctors, and this oh. last girl did not want to be a doctor. Well, that was like, you know, going to UCLA instead of USC or Harvard instead of Yale, you know, if you're in that kind of long-term rivalry. And they just put so much pressure on her that Mm. she was having migraine headaches. She wasn't sleeping at night. She was somatizing all kinds of physical symptoms in her body. And as soon as she finally said, damn it, I'm not going to be a doctor. I'm going to do what I want to do, all the symptoms disappeared, and she was happy because she was going against her grain. Right. And so I believe, you know, I have have an exercise in my book and I have a longer exercise I do in my trainings uh, where I help people get in touch with their purpose. And um, pretty pretty fail-safe process. Almost everyone gets really clear that they do have a purpose, and then we look at how aligned is your current life with that purpose. And if it's not, what changes do you need to make so you're living that purpose? Because if you're not living your purpose, you're not going to be fulfilled. I think Stephen Covey said mm-hmm. you don't want to get to the top of the ladder and realize the ladder's leaning up against the wrong wall. And you'll have all the external toys, but you won't be happy. Mm-hmm. So you are not um, a believer in, you know, for, I guess from the 70s and 80s, the whole movement toward you can be anything you want to be. It sounds like this is a little counter to that. I think you can be anything you want to be because I think you won't want to be something you're not. Um, ah. In other words, I believe that you're not given a dream that you don't have the capacity to fulfill, mm-hmm. that the things I want are not necessarily the same things that someone else wants. I mean, I, I met a guy who's a world uh, uh, extreme fighter, you know, these cage fighters that get in oh, the ring yeah. and just beat the hell out of each other. Ugh. And um, he loves it. He's been training since he was eight years old in the martial arts. Wow. He's got legs like tree trunks. He's got tattoos all over his body that look like, you know, some warrior. And um, he was born to be a warrior. And, uh, you know, as long as there are borders and there are people that are crazy, we need warriors. And I'm not the big, that's not my mission. And I'm all for peace and, and, you know, conflict resolution. I think we need to do more of that. But at the same time, uh, you know, there are certain people born with that, that reality. Some people are born to be professional athletes. And they just they start playing sports when they're two. You watch them throwing a football, you know, with their brother. And then there are other people that are sitting in, in their little fantasy world. And they turn out to be writers. So my belief is you can be anything you want because you won't want to be anything if you don't have the capacity. We have more to talk about with Jack Hanfield when we come right back. It's what to be done, America. If we should not, we will be free so long. Up to date business and financial news. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. The experts are here. Voice America Business Network.
Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexasaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. Technology is intended to improve our lives and solve the world's problems. But technology in itself is a complex myriad of concepts, ideas, and security. How do we sort it all out? Tune in to Technology Today with host Ajay Gupta. The program will go inside the world of technology with innovators, engineers, CEOs, and government officials. Our topics will include green technology, healthcare technology, and cybersecurity. Listen every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. And welcome back to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito. We're speaking with Jack Canfield today. Jack, um, in the last segment, we were speaking a lot about the principles of success, and that has been your business for a long, long time. Um, So I know that you have um, a list. In fact, I think the number is 64 principles. Mm -hmm. How did you come up with 64 principles? Oh, I just threw a dart. No. (laughs) (laughs) So what happened was I was was, uh, sitting in bed one morning with my computer, and I decided I was going to list down all the principles that I had applied in my life to become so successful. I mean, it was the height of chicken soup for the soul. I was averaging about a $6 million a year income. I was living in a fabulous house, had great health, great relationships, and life was good. And I thought, you know, I ought to share with other people what I've learned because I've been studying success as a field of study ever since I was, you know, back in the schools in Chicago looking at how could I help my kids be more successful. And so as I wrote them down, I actually ended up with 114. Oh, and I thought, that's way too many for a book. <laughs> and so I started combining them, and, you know, like you do, and, well, that kind of right. fits under that. That's a subsection of that. And right. I ended up with 64. And so my original intention was to write a book with just, like, you know, three pages with each principle, kind of real down and dirty and pithy. And um didn't happen. You know, I, I had to write more pages for some of them. And uh turned out to be what I call one-stop shopping book that says, okay, if the goal I had, if you could only read one book in your whole life on success, hmm. could I put enough in that book so that you'd actually be able to produce what you want in life? And hmm. according to a lot of people, I've done that. You know, some people have referred to the book as the Think and Grow Rich for the 21st Century. And we get letters. I, I get 50 emails or letters a week saying how people have changed their lives, started companies, written books, you know, um, solve social problems, et cetera, et cetera, as a result of the book. But basically, you know, a lot of people say, well, God, most books have like seven, like the seven habits of highly effective people. Right. And uh, that's an easy number and easy to remember and all that. But I, I had all these students who had read all those books and they still weren't successful. Mm. And so it was kind of like, I think, you know, in the, in the name of publishing success, they left out a bunch of stuff. And so I wanted to give a complete 
map, and the metaphor I use is that uh, success is like knowing the combination to a lock. And if you know the numbers and you have in the right order, it doesn't matter if you're black or white, male or female. It doesn't matter if you graduated from college or didn't, have a high IQ, low IQ, or if you live in the north or live in the south. The lock has to open. And the problem is a lot of people are missing some of the numbers and they don't have in the right order. So I structured the book so you go through it in a very specific lockstep way. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you do the principles and the strategies that I outline in the order that I teach them, uh, you can pretty much create anything you want. Well, you know, I mean, talk about a, a genre that is loaded with so many opportunities, so many options. You know, mm-hmm. if I want to be successful, I go to, you know, Amazon or I go to Borders and I look at the list and I, I could literally throw a dart and get, you know, 25 hits. Mm-hmm. And so how, what is it that continues to draw people to your work? I mean, there's something special here that's a little different, and I think it's more than just the depth with which you have moved into this. It seems to me like there's a little bit more here. Well, I think there's a couple things. You know, one is unbelievable because I'm not just writing about success. I produced it. Mm. Um, Two, you know, I've had, God, what's it been, 40 years of experience. Um, I'm 65. I'll be 66 this summer. And... um, so I've, I've read over 3,000 books. I've taken, God, hundreds of seminars. I've listened to every audio tape and CD program available. I mean, literally, I just ordered the Silva Mind Control Method just, you know, two weeks ago. Oh. And um, yeah, I'm constantly studying. So people know I'm committed to my own growth. Mm-hmm. People know that I'm not out to make another dollar. I have all the money I'd ever need from me and my grandchildren. But it's like I keep teaching because I really care. I think that caring comes through. I think I have a gift to take complicated topics and make them simple to understand. And finally, because of the chicken soup for the soul experience, uh, it's not just a dry book. Like, you know, I love Brian Tracy's books. He's got a lot of great information, but they're hard to read sometimes Mm -hmm. because it's just one list of five things you need to do after another. And what I've done is I've every, every, every principle, well, I did two things. I went out when I wrote this book. I thought, you know, I want to make sure these principles aren't just idiosyncratic to me, that they're not, you know, uniquely mm-hmm. for me. So I interviewed 75 of the world's most successful people, uh, people who own basketball teams, you know, professional basketball teams, people who had written platinum songs in Nashville, people that were recording artists, people that were Olympic and professional athletes, top salespeople, generals in the Army, etc. And I said, you know, and when I interviewed him, I showed him a list of these principles, and I said, are these relevant to your success? You know, tell me what you did and didn't do. And in g- generally, almost everyone applied the same principles, so we know they're universal. And finally, because of the chicken soup experience, every principle has a story or three or four related to it. So when I say stories help you Velcro information to your brain, that, you know, I can give you a concept, and it's just an intellectual structure. But if I tell you a story then you'll remember the concept that's embedded in the story because people are naturally storytellers. We've sat around for centuries in front of fireplaces and fires and told stories, and that's why movies are so popular. They have a beginning, a middle, and an end, and we wanted that resolution. And the same is true with a story. Once I hear that story that contains the principle, I can remember it. It makes it human, makes it real, makes it very readable. You know, people who are successful um, often say, um, well, yes, this is my success, but there were, 
you know, ten times more failures than this one success mm-hmm. in order to get here. Mm-hmm. Is that was that your experience in life? Oh, absolutely. I mean, um, <laughs> I could tell you lots of stories. We, you know, when I was doing seminars, one day we decided to do a guest event on the Tuesday before Thanksgiving. That didn't work. Nobody came. <laughs> they were all they were all headed off to Grandma's house. We spent a fortune trying to get people there. Radio, you know, interviews and ads and so forth. We learned not to do that again. Uh, I remember the first seminar I ever ran for self-esteem. Uh, we did this very cathartic emotional process on Sunday afternoon, and then sent everybody home. And it was like they all went home like with the open heart surgery in the middle of the operation. So we had to like put that on Saturday and spend Sunday, you know, kind of yeah. integrating it all. And um, you know, we, we opened offices that didn't make it. I wrote books that never got published. I mean, Chicken Soup for the Soul was rejected by 144 publishers before we found a publisher. It took us 18 months to get a publisher. And we were constantly revising the proposal, revising the book outline, editing the stories. We edited every story in that first book was read and edited at least six times. Mm. So it's just, um, you know, I mean, I remember um, the guy who uh, wrote ER, the original book that became the TV show, yeah. mm-hmm. getting his name right now. But he also wrote Jurassic Park and so forth. He said, I never write a book that I don't edit at least 10 times. He said, it's wow. more about the editing than the writing. And so, you know, the, that just basically tells you the first draft was awful. And you've got to keep fixing it. And mm-hmm. I think the big thing I learned along the way, every chicken soup for the soul story has in it uh, stories that have been read by at least 40 people and graded on a scale of 1 to 10. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the stories that I loved didn't make it in the book because they didn't score well with the readers. And so, you know, constantly looking to improve and to be open to feedback and be willing to fail, just put out a first draft, let people respond, and then continue to work on it. You know, I've, I've been divorced before, so, you know, that was, I don't, I don't think of it as a failure. I think it was a very great success until the last year, and then we just moved in different directions. But, you know, you could say I failed to maintain a 50-year marriage or something like that. So, yeah, I've had a lot of things where I've had to learn from my mistakes and I, I look at the word fail. If you write down the word fail, mm-hmm. then you take the I and you just put a little line coming out of the bottom of the I, that word becomes fall instead of <laughs> fail. And when you're learning to walk and you fall down, your parents don't go, oh, my God, Jack failed to learn to walk. They just say, stand up, keep trying. And then eventually you stop falling and you keep walking. Well, you have been uh, very open about some parts of your personal life and um, your son, who is now an author in his own right. Is mm-hmm. Oren, is that his name? Yeah, Oren, O-R-A-N. And you talk about the challenge because you were not around a lot when he was growing up, mm-hmm. at least for some part of his growing up life, right? Yeah, I got and, divorced from his mom when he was uh, very young. Okay. And so, um, and yet it seems that... Um, Today, you know, he he has a perspective on what the um, self-help genre is about, and you know, here you are in the self-help genre, and so talk about how you guys have reconciled, you know, being father and son in your very high-profile world. Well, Oren grew up uh, in Berkeley with his mother, and and she was, um, you know. She was busy a lot. She was a psychotherapist. And, and because I was in the self-help field and he didn't get the parenting he felt he needed, he kind of looked down on the whole thing and uh, wrote a book about his experiences of being a heroin addict for a number of years. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I helped him 
get into a treatment program and get into the Hoffman process and do a number of things. And eventually he got sober, and he's been sober now for about 10 years, doing very, very well. Wrote a book about it, very funny book, very painful to read for me, but very funny at the same time. And, um, you know, he puts down the self-help movement a lot, but, you know, he'll tell you privately now that he sees the value of it, but it made the book a lot more readable. And he's writing about (laughs) what he was experiencing as a child, and as a child, that's what he felt. So it's a memoir written from the perspective of the age he was when he was recounting those Mm -hmm. uh, tales. Uh, But he's come to some of my trainings and helped out, and he's, um, you know, uh, been... We we did some family therapy work together. We... um, my current wife and uh, him and myself and his brother um, have gone to a number of workshops together and worked on our stuff and been very, very profoundly helpful. Well, you know, I think it's important for people to hear this side of you or anybody who has grand success that's very visible in the world because it's easy to think that, um, well, you know, their life is so perfect. Mm-hmm. And if I just do what he says, my life will be just like that. And um, I, I think it's important for people to understand that life is a spectrum, you know. And yeah, and I think it's also important to understand when you're calling life not perfect, it doesn't mean it is. It means it might not be convenient, it might not be easy, it might not be all, you know, pussycats and flowers. But the reality is that what's happening is exactly what needs to happen to grow. Go back to my point that we're here for mastery. We're not here to accumulate things or to necessarily build up a big resume. Mm -hmm. That all goes when you go. But the consciousness you develop, the qualities you develop, all the indications are they stay with you when you go to the next dimension. So basically, uh, we're here for consciousness, awareness, growth, mastery, as well as, you know, living a good life, an ethical life, make a difference, you know, all of that. You want to be happy. But when things show up, you know, you could ask yourself the question, if this was for me, what would it be? And is there a quality I need to develop, like patience, perseverance, humility? I mean, I got a lot of humility out of my experience with Oren. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, a lot of growth for me in terms of, you know, really connecting to family and spending more time uh, with that, which has been, you know, a commitment of mine now for the last four years. We've been, mm-hmm. I remember I created something called the Year of the Family, where we did all those workshops and we spent a lot of time visiting each other and of them coming out here, we did a big family reunion and so forth. Well, that was that was that was perfect for me. I needed that. I needed that, even though it was painful and difficult. Right. It was exactly what my soul was yearning for. Right, right. And then this kind of, as you say, that the piece about perfect being perfect, and then makes me think of what you said in the first segment about the being a perfectionist as being a self-esteem issue. Mm-hmm. Um, that that's a very interesting perspective. I had not considered that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm going to have to really look at that one. <laughs> yeah, the perfectionism is all about I'm not good enough. Yeah. So i got to be perfect to be good enough. i got to be more than enough to be enough is the way I hold it. Mm. And, um, you know, I used to go around dropping names and doing all this stuff when I was younger because I wanted to be enough. I wanted mm. people to notice me. Mm. And then someone said, you're actually turning people off <laughs> when you do that. And so if you just accept you're enough and be yourself, you'll be fine. And that's that's what I'm trying to always teach people, you know. We do these one-day workshops around the country, and you know we're doing one coming up in Boston next weekend, and mm-hmm. uh, this will be the last in the series of five that we're doing this year. And in addition to teaching people about success, you know we also have a couple of exercises that let people know that you are enough, just the way you are, mm-hmm. and that, that as you surrender into that and become who you are, um, 
life gets much more easy. It's like I call it like you're paddling downstream instead of paddling upstream. Ah. And, uh, you know, too many of us are struggling against the current of who we are and what the world is. And when we just surrender and relax, we can flow with it. And um, actually success becomes much easier. I mean, I've often thought of calling my workshops effortless success. It doesn't mean you don't it. work. It just means right. it doesn't feel like work because you're doing something you love. You're really going with the flow. Mm-hmm. So talk a little bit. We have a couple of minutes left. Talk a little bit about that, the weekend workshop you have coming up in Boston. Well, basically, it's a one-day seminar. It goes from 9, until 6, 9 a.m. until 6 p.m. Uh, it's limited to 400 people. I think we're in the mid-300, so there's still about 50 spaces left. And people fly in from all over. I'm always, you know, we put them all over the country thinking people would fly in regionally, but we have people in Seattle that flew in from Australia, South America, Germany. I couldn't believe it. And, uh, you know, from Kansas and Canada and everywhere else. So don't, don't think you have to live in Boston to do this. But we decided that normally I do a seven-day training every summer. People can mm-hmm. find out about that at www.jackcanfield.com. But basically we said, you know, we, we wanted to do something that would make this work available to people that didn't have seven days or that, that didn't mm-hmm. want to make that kind of a commitment without knowing more about mm-hmm. the work we do. So it's a one-day workshop. It teaches you about 15 of the principles that are critical to success. It's a basic roadmap from purpose to vision to goals to action plans to building a success team and looking at all the blocks that show up along the way to manifesting a vision so that you know when those blocks are there, you know how to overcome them and, and, and create it. We had a woman take the training a year ago, and she made in, she actually lives in Boston, actually. She's a yoga teacher. And uh, she made in January the same amount of money she made the previous year. So she's turned her yearly income into a monthly income based on the principles that we taught her in that workshop. That's what people are reporting all the time is that they're just having major quantum leap breakthroughs and success. So if anyone's interested, you just go to our website, jackcanfield.com, or you can go to the successprinciplesworkshop.com. That's plural, successprinciplesworkshop.com. And you can register online. You can there'll be a phone number there if you want to call for more information. And uh, it's a great experience. People will meet people that will become lifelong friends and business partners. And um, if you're out there alone, there's no need to be. There's all kinds of people you can hook up with and have a great, uh, great team for success. Jack, it's been great having you here today. Thank you so much for joining us on Leading Conversations. The book is The Success Principles, How to Get from Where You Are to Where You Want to Be. The workshop is The Success Principles Workshop, and you can find more about that on Jack's website. Jack, thanks again. We'll have to have you back. You can fill us in on some more stories about what has gone on. We haven't even talked about the secret yet. Well, I'd love to. Let's do it. Okay. Let's get it. Okay. All right. All right. Have a good weekend. Good luck with the workshop. And remember, everyone, think big. The world could be a better place because of a conversation that matters. This is Cheryl Esposito. Thank you for spending this hour with Cheryl Esposito and Leading Conversations. You can listen live every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you have a question or comment for Cheryl, please email her at leadingconversations at alexaconsulting.com. That's L-E-A-D-I-N-G-C-O-N-V-E-R-S-A-T-I-O-N-S at A-L-E-X-S-A-C-O-N-S-U-L-T-I-N-G.com. See you next week.
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.